0: Good morning. Last week we began a new study in the book of Acts. Before we get, though, too far past those introductory verses, I think it will be helpful, and many of you might have been surprised when I sent out the reading assignment for this week. I think it's helpful to look at the very last verses of Luke's first book, which is the Gospel of Luke, because what we have there is... The same event that we went over last week, but with greater details, and there's something there I want you to see. So if you would turn to Luke 24, and we're going to do verses 36 to 53. And if you would, let's stand as, as we read these verses together. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, That the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but, and while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing of just having the confidence that we have truth before us. We're in a time period in which everyone is trying to define their own truth. We're in a time of, of great confusion and relativism and, and the exaltation of man. Thank you, Lord, that we have timelessness, that we have absent to apply and Jesus was resurrected, That was baptizing them into the end of this to go and make, make those who convert how Jesus told the disciples Jerusalem until they receive the in the Gospels is really the beginning of the rest of the story. Correction and a mission and they are promised the power to accomplish all of that, which is what we saw last week, the sending and empowering of the Holy Spirit and what we see this week, the intercession and continuing mediation of Christ. Well, I want to talk about that second part. What does that mean, really? Because there is a common error when it comes to understanding Jesus' work after the resurrection. And that is we tend to think that after he did his atoning work on the cross, and after he rose again, and then, well, then he rested returned to heaven and gave the church the commission to go and make disciples. Like, okay, I'm leaving. This is what I want you to do in my absence. Go make disciples of the nations. And so what do we do when we look at the book of Acts? We call it the Acts of the what? Apostles. Almost always we call it the Acts of the Apostles. As if we think, well, Jesus did his part. Then the apostles did their part. And now the rest of the church does its part. And if we're not careful, we'll tend to think of Christ and the angels, you know, the risen enthroned Christ, they're cheering us on. Right? And having sent as much as it is the apostles. Remember that in Matthew 16, Jesus told Peter, I will build my church. When? It wasn't right there at the last few months of his ministry. It wasn't during the last year of his ministry he was going to start all the foundational work and build the church. No, he's implying that after the resurrection, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. And that's what we are going to see in this book of Acts, how Jesus does exactly that. He builds his church. Now, Paul recognized this uh, truth when he wrote in Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 18, where he said, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So, certainly for Paul, whatever he accomplished, he believed it was Christ accomplishing it through him. And the same is true of you. Anything that you accomplish, a word or deed for the kingdom, is what Christ is accomplishing through you. In today's passage, in verse 48, we read more details about the ascension of Christ... That took up only three verses in our passage last week in Acts chapter 1. According to Luke, Jesus said, you are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It says he led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them, was carried up into heaven. And we learn details that weren't there in Acts. We, we learn how Jesus led the disciples out to Bethany. That's the place where he raised Lazarus from the dead. It's a village on the southeast slope of the Mount of Olives. And, and there the last thing that Jesus did was he lifted up his hands and blessed the people before he ascended into heaven. Now, I'll bet most of you have not ever really noticed that part, the lifting up of his hands and blessing them. But it's very important and significant. Because when Jesus lifted his hands and blessed the people, you envision it like this, where he's blessed, speaking of, of done for centuries before. Aaron, the high priest, lifting offering and the peace offerings. And we actually find high priestly benedictions throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy 10.8 tells us that at that time... The Lord had set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister, to pronounce blessings in his name, as they still do today. Deuteronomy 22, or 21.5 says, Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 30 speaks about the celebration of the Passover by King Hezekiah is what's going on there. And at the conclusion of that ceremony, we read that the priests and the Levites arose, they blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to this holy habitation in heaven. So from the time of Aaron to the time of Jesus... The priests have blessed the people, lifting their hands, speaking a benediction upon them. Why? They always did that to remind the people that God had promised to accept and had accepted their sacrifice. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, every man and woman is alienated from God at birth, and yet God had a plan to reconcile his people to himself. And that plan was the atonement of Christ. Before he sent his son, however, God typified or foreshadowed what was going to happen in that sacrifice for what the death of Jesus would represent. And so the Bible says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. And to appease that wrath, the high priest would offer up once a year sacrifices on behalf of... And, of course, we know that none of that was ultimately sufficient in itself. Hebrews 10 says it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to forgive sin and cleanse the conscience. So the important aspect of the sacrifice was not the slaughter of the animals. It was what the sacrifice represented, which was the future sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And it also represented the people's response in faith to the promise of God to accept their offering. Especially to accept the offering that was given on behalf of the whole nation. And so year after year, the people trusted God's promise. They brought their animals to the priests. The priests performed the sacrifice according to God's instruction. And then they lifted their hands and blessed the people. God accepts your sacrifice. He has promised to forgive. And that is the context for Luke 24. In Acts chapter 1, that Jesus, the perfect high priest, had offered the perfect sacrifice of himself. And his parting benediction was, God accepts this sacrifice. God forgives. Friends, the word became flesh. The Son of God became man to die on our behalf. He was born to die and that is what Jesus spent the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension explaining to the disciples. That's what we learn in Luke chapter 24. If you look at first, uh, verse 46, and he said to them, thus it was written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, right? That's... When we're talking about his command to be witnesses in Acts chapter 1, that is what he wants us to witness to, that truth. He explained that he was the Lamb of God. And if you look back even earlier in chapter 24, back at verse 27, you'll find that Jesus, when he appeared to some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says how he began with Moses and went all through the prophets, interpreting to them In the scriptures, the things concerning himself, which were the birth, death, and resurrection, ultimately, of the Son of God. And so you can think of the cross, think of it as an altar, remember the priests sacrificing their offerings on the altar, Jesus as the priest offers himself on the cross, And at the end of this atonement and then 40 days of post-resurrection appearances explaining what had happened, he then led his disciples to the Mount of Olives, to Bethany, and there as the great priest, high priest, who had offered himself as the atonement, once for all he performed the last act on earth, which was to bless the people. And I'm sure that as they looked at those upraised hands, they could see the nail prints. Even as Thomas had seen. And that blessing communicated there would be no sin so great that it would turn the face of God from us ever again. All had been atoned for, all covered for those who turn in faith to the Savior. And I don't want to leave Jesus having died on the cross. As if what happened was Jesus blessed the people and said, God has forgiven you. And now look what happened. We threw this pail of water over the consuming fire, right? That is God. And now he's kind of the, the guy that was inapproachable before. The vengeful God has now become the chuckling, gracious Father. No, no, stop. Don't do that. That's not what happens. God is still holy. He is still inapproachable by sin. But I want to show you something in Hebrews 4.15. The book of Hebrews says that after Jesus ascended, that he passed through the heavens into the presence of the Father. Hebrews 7.25 says that the Son now lives to make intercession for us. And with that in mind, Hebrews 4 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And perhaps you can envision the high priestly part that Jesus played. But what about this tempted as we are part of his ministry, is that really possible? And why was that significant? Author C.S. Lewis once imagined someone asking if that if Jesus never sinned, how can you really say that he knew what temptation was like? Have you ever asked that question? And this is what Lewis wrote in response to that. He said, a silly idea is current, that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about evil. It's an interesting insight, isn't it? Why bad people, in in one sense, know very little about evil. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the man who knows to the full what temptation means. He is the only complete realist, says Lewis. Are you still struggling, though, with the thought of Jesus actually being tempted? Is it because we so often fail ourselves in the face of temptation? Is it because to be tempted means to dwell in our minds is to dwell for a moment on the possibility of sin? And, and then we ask, well, is that, okay, I can accept what Lewis is saying. I think that's good insight, but is that, is that what happened with Jesus, that for these moments he's contemplating sin and this is, this is, no, not for me. Well, think about this. The Gospels present Jesus as the second Adam. Like the first Adam, Jesus is the second Adam is sinless. Adam was tempted with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was given to him by his wife. He was tempted in the pre-fall condition of an earthly paradise, but Jesus, we are told, was tempted in the existing conditions of the fall in a desert wilderness after having endured 40 days of hunger. Why? Jesus is made weak. He's made tired. He's made lonely. He's made distressed to create an environment in which he is truly susceptible to temptation. He had been anointed as high priest at his baptism, proclaimed the representative of humanity during the first 39 days of his fast from food. The work to which he had been anointed as high priest must have always been ahead of him and what that was going to require of him. Especially what it would mean to bear the sins of his people. So often, when we think about Jesus being tempted, we think of things like temptation to anger or greed or lust or typically whatever we find tempting. The gospel shows that the real temptation for Jesus centered around the cross. And I wonder if day by day during that testing time after his baptism that this sense of utter loneliness and forsakenness increasingly gathers around him and if on in this increasing time of faintness and weakness that there was a sense of hopelessness of his task coming upon him with overwhelming power. It's the heart of the temptations by Satan. Take a shortcut. Circumvent what the Father has planned. He was tempted to give in to his own desires rather than to absolutely submit to the will of his Father. And that is ultimately the substance of all temptations that we face. The heart of temptation is that that we want to elevate our own safety, our own desires, our own perceived needs above the will of God that we should avoid the suffering and the sacrifice and embrace the pleasure that we want. And if you fast forward to Gethsemane, it's the same temptation. Just like that conflict with Satan in the wilderness, Jesus in the garden, thinking about the cross. What does he pray? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's a temptation to exert my will, my desires. Was that weakness? It was a type of weakness, but it wasn't sin. And Jesus, the man, he's peering into the darkest pit. He's looking ahead at a task that no man, no angel could perform. No angel had the power to break the gates of hell. No man had the purity to destroy sin's claim restore man and reconcile him to a holy inapproachable god and here is this deep mystery of our faith which is the two natures of god the son incarnate divinity humanity one tempted the other saying not my will but yours And Hebrews 5, 7 vividly describes the moment. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Loud cries, loud tears. The flesh was weak in the moment of loneliness and the reality of forsakenness but the Spirit was willing. And while Jesus knew what it was like to be torn between those two desires to protect oneself versus to submit to God, Jesus also knew the Father's answer, just as he knew the answer in the wilderness. And that answer was no. But do you remember that Jesus praised that same prayer three times in Gethsemane? Three times he praised it. He knows what it's like to be tempted, to struggle, to be weak with thirst and hunger, to desire not to die, at least not that way, bearing the sins. He is a sympathetic mediator between you and God. You can draw near to the throne of the Father with the Son as your mediator and expect to find as we read, to find mercy and grace in time of your need. And when I call Jesus a mediator between you and and the Father, I realize that I may be creating a false picture in your mind. You might take me to mean that that God is this bad guy and we are the victims. Jesus is like a son who, who comes in between a furious father, an angry dad, and a helpless sibling, and kind of holds him back, grabs the father's arms, and says, please stay calm, Dad. But there are three things wrong with that picture, and the first is you and I are not victims of God. We are sinners against God. As we read back in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our consciences tell us plainly that that is true. We've not even lived up to our own standards, let alone God's. The second thing wrong with that picture is that Jesus did not intrude himself between us and God. Here's here's where that false picture is so false. Jesus is not as a mediator jumping in to wrestle the Father away from destroying us with a laser beam. It's the Father who sent the Son between himself and us. Remember, one of the favorite verses, everybody. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes on him might have everlasting life. It was the father's idea for the son to be our mediator. He took the initiative out of love to make a way for his people to be reconciled to him. And the third thing wrong with that picture is that God does not lose his cool. He's not impulsive. He's not rash. He's not reckless. But it is true that he is perfectly righteous. And it is true that he is unswervingly just and infinitely holy. He does uphold his law with perfect equity and justice. There is no bribery impossible. There are no skeletons in the closet that if we only find them out can get us an end. As John writes in his first letter, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And the fact that God is light and perfectly pure and holy is why we need a mediator. According to Isaiah 59.2, our, our iniquities have made a separation between us and our God. And our sins have hidden his face from us so that he does not hear. Because he is that blazing fire of light and truth and righteousness. So Jesus is both high priest and he is mediator of. And in the Old Testament, those two roles were always connected. In fact, in the world of the Old Testament, no one taught God's lesson concerning the need and value of a mediator more colorfully or dramatically than the high priest. If you read through those early books in the Old Testament, you read through the the colorful clothing that they wore and what was embroidered on all of the clothes and sewn into the clothes and Most symbolic of all were the two stones upon which were engraved the names of the tribes of Israel. And as Exodus 28, 12 tells us, Aaron bore their names, the high priest bore their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance when he went into the sanctuary. For his remembrance? No. No ultimately as a symbolic caring of the nation with him into the presence of God. And as God remembers the people. And they are supported as they were on the weakness. In their weakness, they are supported on the strong shoulders of the high priest. And that... And so much more is what it means for Jesus to be our mediator. It's like what used to happen with Aaron and the other high priests they bore the names of the tribes of Israel into the presence of God. Jesus is our mediator. He's not wrestling God. He's bearing our names before his father as a remembrance of what he has done. And we are supported on the shoulders of Christ. No greater encouragement for our faith could be given than that, that Christ has carried us into the presence of God. And He knows what it's like. He is strong partly because He is sympathetic to us in our weakness. He knows what it was like to be tempted, He knows our weakness. And we can't lose sight of that, or we will forget that our ability to approach the throne of God is only because of Jesus' continued uh, intercession. And I think one of the best illustrations that I've read about that was, was the example of Martin Luther and... You may remember during a, a Reformation night. Well, probably not most of you. This many, many years ago. I was describing what happened. He was he was called to celebrate his first Mass. Martin Luther was, and everyone was in attendance, including his estranged father, who had recently, only recently, recovered from the fact that Martin had decided to leave law because that was what the whole family was was thinking was going to be so so we're going to be so proud of our son he's becoming a lawyer his his son decides to become a priest well he's gotten over that so he's decided to attend the ceremony in which he is going to offer for the first moment and it's really kind of that initiatory rite for a a priest was to give the prayer of consecration of the bread. And what was taught to happen by this time in the the Catholic Church, it had come to be taught that when the priest prayed the prayer of consecration, that the bread on the table miraculously became the actual body and the wine became the blood of christ in in this mystical substantial way it's called transubstantiation and so he's he's envisioning in his mind what is about to happen and he freezes he freezes and then this nervous hush comes over and his dad's leaning forward in the seat come on don't and Luther's lip begins to quiver. This is him describing this, by the way. And he's trying to say the words of the Mass. He's trying to say the words of the prayer of consecration. But he can't say anything. He, he finally returns he to the table where his father and the guests are seated. And his dad is mad, furious, Martin describes later. He had just made a generous contribution to the monastery. And now he feels humiliated at the very place where he's come to visit and witness his son's honor. And so he raises the question at that moment, if, if Martin, in front of the other priest, are you even fit to be a priest? What happened? Well, Luther later says this. These are his words. I was to speak the words. We offer, this is the words of the prayer of consecration. We offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. And as I I spoke those words in my mind, I was utterly terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? Seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince, Who am I that I should lift up my eyes and raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this? I ask for that? I'm dust and ashes and full of sin. And here I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God and that i think is a great illustration of appreciating the majesty and holiness of god so often we casually approach god maybe it's not praying a prayer of consecration but isn't it in our prayers more along the line of god bless me for this lord open the doors for me as i perform this activity but we don't control the creator of the universe his plans Supersede our own. We can no more invoke his blessings on a whim than Luther could invoke the Lord to limit himself to bread, which would sit in a sinful human's hand. I mean, think about that, right? Uzzah couldn't touch the ark, he dies. And yet, Luther, in that moment, realizing, I, a sinner, am about to invoke God to limit himself to become bread, and I'm going to hold him in my hand. Well, we cannot and must not have a callous disregard for the holiness of the same God who commanded Moses to take off his sandals, for he was on holy ground just because it was in the presence of God. The same God who only allowed the high priest to come into his presence once a year on the day of atonement. The more reverently we view God, friends, the more we will understand why we need a high priest and a mediator. And it's in that moment, it's in that moment that as we read Luke 24 and we see that Jesus raises his hands and blesses the people, giving a priestly blessing, as if to say, my brothers and sisters, it truly is finished. You are forgiven. And then that he passed through the heavens to be in the presence of the Father mediating on our behalf that we truly appreciate what great news this is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is the only true mediator between man and God. And Peter said, Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So friends, I commend that to you. There is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name among, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And it's to that truth that Jesus calls the disciples. Be a witness. And it is Jesus' desire that those who have been blessed, because we are a part of that blessing when Jesus raised his hands that day, that we should in turn bless the nations by being a witness to these things. And then what should be our final response? We see it in verse 52 of our passage. It says, Having received the blessing of Jesus, the disciples worshipped him. And this is the first time Luke uses the word worship with reference to Jesus. It means his disciples now recognize him as God incarnate. There's no more doubt. And yet they also realize that God became a man to die in their place. And so they worship him, those whose sins have been forgiven. And then it says, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Worship, joy, verse 53 tells us they did one more thing. They stayed continually at the temple blessing God. And that word here, in blessing God, means to praise him. It's a little bit different than what Jesus did. So God blesses us. We praise him, we worship him, we in turn bless others, and we are joyful. That's the foundation of the church. That is what will make them witnesses. It is what is absolutely, fundamentally, foundationally important for us as a church to be effective, is that we realize these same things, what it means for God to have blessed us in this way, and that we worship God, we are joyful, we praise God continually, and we go out to bless the nations. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder to be rooted on the understanding of what took place in Christ's atonement for us, what was significant about Jesus lifting his hands and blessing us, I pray that we would have that same understanding so that our response would be similar to the disciples, that we would worship you with joy, blessing you, praising you, and going out to serve and bless the nations by being a witness to the good news of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.